Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. Judith Edge talks about Victorian philanthropy and its legacy. period which was what brought me first of all to the history group and I find the the people who made their names particularly as women's rights came in more and more interesting as I get older and older and the reasons for their behavior and the reasons for the decisions they made so I start off with this picture because you all know enough because we've had so many lectures now about the conditions in London and other cities as the factories grew and people migrated from the town and they ended up living in these slums. There's hundreds of pictures on the internet of these slums. So I thought I'd think about philanthropy today before we start off because I think it's a very topical, (laughs) topical, topical subject because I have a fear, I don't know if you have, that this welfare safety net that we all have lived with is disappearing fast. And our society may have to depend more and more on philanthropists to keep the poor, if you like, the needy, the underprivileged, in some sort of decent style, some sort of decent home. So I looked across to America where we can see that philanthropy plays an enormous part And I looked at him because he's so well-known. He is the person who actually said, legacy is stupid, I don't want a legacy. But he also said, is the rich world aware of how 4 billion of the 6 billion live? If we were aware, we would want to help out. We can make market forces work better for the poor if we can develop a more creative capitalism. There is more money put into baldness drugs than into malaria. The real philanthropists are those who make a significant sacrifice. And it's possible that Bill Gates, in saying this, is thinking when he says he doesn't want a legacy, that in terms of real sacrifice, he's given millions and millions and millions away, but he might be saying to himself, what have I sacrificed? Anyway, those issues, you know, the, the giving pledge in America has got this group of over 200 very, 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 very rich people who are giving or pledging to give half their wealth either during their lifetime or afterwards to philanthropic causes. So it links very much with the motivations of the people in Victorian times when I think quite late on tax was eight pence in the pound might have wished to do something other with their money than just leave it to their children, grandchildren and family. Joseph Roundtree. He did come to London a few times in his life, particularly in his 20s, and he listened to debates, and he listened to Disraeli and Gladstone, and he might have been interested in politics, but actually his life was a bit circumscribed. He came from a grocer's family. His grandfather had a grocery shop in Scarborough, though not a very successful one, and Joseph Senior, that's his father, worked in it from a young boy. But there wasn't enough money to keep the whole family, and so Joseph's father, they're both Joseph, unfortunately, came to York to set up a business on his own. He bought a dilapidated shop on the pavement. He must have had a little bit of capital. It was probably called On Pavement because it was the first paved street in York, right in the middle, next to the market, which was helpful. And this Joseph Senior already had 10 years of experience in the trade, although he was only 21. And he lived above the shop with his sister and soon employed a couple of apprentices. And they worked incredibly long hours, six days a week, apart from Sunday. And when it was market day, it was most of the night, most of the day. Now, the thing you need to know about the the Roundtree family, which you probably do know, is they were a Quaker family. And it was a liberal household, but deliberately apart from the world because the Quakers set themselves apart. George Fox and his testimonies restricted their choice of career by his peace testimony, for starters, so they couldn't join the army or the navy or the forces. They couldn't go into the church because they were dissenters. 
and they couldn't become members of parliament because they refused to swear oaths. Their word was their bond, and they didn't believe in swearing oaths. So it restricted their choice of career. But their reputation for fairness and honesty helped them to flourish in business. And you probably know of some Quaker famous businesses that sprang up particularly in the Victorian times. They were something of an industrial hierarchy. It was a narrow background, but quite a few remarkable people emerged from that narrow background. The Cadbury's family, John Bright, a lot of the fighters against the slave trade. William Took founded the retreat in York for the first place to treat mental illness humanely. All these people were remarkable. And he had a happy childhood. This is our Joseph, though not very privileged. The sugar was stored in the basement for their, for their grocery store, and, it, and rats used to constantly be invading the house. He also had to sleep in a bedroom curtained off from the dining room because there were quite a few children. But his business flourished. Joseph Sr. was as good a man as Joseph Jr., I have to say. Right, but there was a seminal moment for Joseph Jr. when his father took him out of Bootham School, which is a Quaker school, where he learnt natural history, which wasn't really taught on the general curriculum. His father, when he was about 14, went with the head teacher of Bootham School, probably sent by the Quakers to look into the Irish situation. And he took his two sons... And this Irish potato famine, the scenes of it, affected him for the rest of his life. The memory of that three weeks' journey stayed with him until he died. He saw half-dead women sitting by the roadside clutching babies. He saw men who lay dying beside a basket of turf which they had carried for miles and failed to sell. He saw places where the dead, uncoffined and unknown, had been lain in trenches by those who were too weak to do more. The schoolboy, with his journal in his pocket, looked and remembered. He was very much one from taking note of things. He kept a journal. He kept a natural history journal in which he pressed flowers, but he also kept notes the whole of his life. This incident was something he never forgot. He did have an education till he was 13 at Bootham School, which was a fairly liberal education, and science was taught. But at 13, he started working for his father. This was traditional in Quaker households. A lot of these men and women had no formal education after the age of about 13, and very often they pursued whatever scientific or historical interests they had as a side to their businesses. And some of them contributed quite significantly to the study of science and natural history. Anyway, he was treated as the other apprentices and he learned from the shop floor how the business was run. And he also worked as a volunteer for the adult school, teaching adults to read. He did visit London, as I said, he had a bit of freedom, and I think he would have liked to have stayed in London. He got so excited by going to Parliament and listening to big debates. But his father called him back, and then his father died in 1859, and Joseph and his brother were left to run the business, aged 23 and 25. He was married by then, his, his wife gave birth to a daughter, but unfortunately both those died young, so it wasn't as if he hadn't been affected by tragedy. But as a result of his work, and because he was interested in numbers, that's one of the reasons why he became such a successful businessman, he started collecting statistics. His young wife has died, he's working late hours at the pavement shop, it's still work where he's working, he's measuring tea and coffee and mixing them, because everything depended then on the skill of the shopkeeper. They didn't have proprietary brands that people say, oh, I'll go for that because I know it's good. So it depended on the reputation of the shopkeeper. And because Joseph's father had built up this reputation so successfully and Joseph had learned it, that's what he prided himself on, quality goods. They even mixed the butter, apparently. And so the housekeepers, the, 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 their wives doing their shopping, would trust Roundtree's to give them a good product. So he, he was good at statistics, he was good at figures as well. Maybe he would have been a mathematician. But he started collecting them because he was interested in poverty. He collected tables on the number of paupers, table to illustrate the number of illiterate men and women, and that's how he found out. He must have spent a lot of time doing research. He was looking to see who could not sign their name and counting them, obviously, as illiterate. He saw a connection between poverty, illiteracy and crime, which we could all understand. He collected statistics on crime. 
the poorest areas are the ones where there's most crime, aren't there? We don't have to pay so much insurance because we live in a nice area, and so on and so forth. He made an analysis of import and export figures, national expenditure, and details of population, including the division into classes. It was a very elementary division. There was one million rich, one million poor, meaning destitute, and in the middle, I think there was about 18 million like workmen, tradesmen, skilled workers, and about 9 million of the, what you might call middle class, something like that. I don't know how he did it. It was pretty rough. So he realised that economic factors were a factor in, in crime. He wrote a paper sarcastically entitled British Civilization." He quoted a judge in it sentencing a man to death for forging a note value one pound. And this is the judge sentencing this man to death. And I trust that through the mediation of our blessed Redeemer, you may there experience that mercy, which a proper regard for the paper currency of the country forbids you to hope for here. He wrote another paper that was even more damning, and, and the Quakers, even the Quakers, asked him to water it down before it was delivered. The medical officer of the Board of Health has recently declared, after most careful investigation, that one-fifth of our population have not a sufficiency of food and clothing. It is a monstrous thing that in this land, rich in natural wealth and now rich beyond all precedent, millions of its inhabitants made in the image of their creator should spend their days in a struggle for existence so severe as to blight where it does not destroy the higher parts of their nature. And he, at that point, used to blame the church and the state because he saw them as having the same interests. They are willing, the church and the state, for the people to be happy if that happiness can coexist with their exclusive privileges. But when we turn to Christianity as the only radical cure for the sorrows of nations and of men, we find that one half of the organised Christian life of this country is paralysed by its connection with the state. When the voice of British Christianity should make itself heard, when there is a massacre in Jamaica, which I did look up, you can look up, there was a massacre in Jamaica, British soldiers, or an opium war in China, when public opinion is faltering upon the question of Negro slavery, the 20,000 clergymen of the Church of England are silent. That was him, and he had to wash it down for, for his Quaker brethren. Right, okay, so I'm, I'm proceeding to show you how he got his money, because he started off, you know, not underprivileged, but not very privileged either. So he goes to join his brother, Henry, who owned a chocolate and chicory factory at Tanner's Moat, down by the river, which floods a lot in York. This chocolate factory was founded by the Tuke family of Quakers, but they couldn't find a son to take it over. So Henry bought into it, but he wasn't doing very well. So Joseph took his equity out of the pavement shop and put it into this factory. And apparently it was hellish working there. There was no lifts. Everything was carted by hand, you can imagine, and it would flood a lot as well. And all the buildings were separate. It wasn't built originally to one design. So Joseph took over the accounts and started to sort it out, but the first ten years were an uphill struggle, and he even had to sell his horse and wagonette, which was the sign of being middle class then, the carriage trade. He had to sell it to save money. But his brother died in 1883, and he became the sole owner. So in 1888, there was a massive leap forward. You probably know that Cadbury's was doing very well, and maybe you know something about the history of Cadbury's. But Cadbury's was ahead in the chocolate game, but Joseph decided to invest in a machine brought over by a Frenchman, Claude Gaget. It produced crystallised gum pastels, which at the time were a monopoly of the French. They were an instant success because they had no competition. Profits accumulated. Joseph Rangie resisted advertising. He thought, because of his tradition, the brand should sell itself. Profits accumulated. He allowed advertising after a bit, but in 1899 there was only one man employed on PR. There were hundreds later on, increasing numbers into the 20th century. Profits accumulated. What shall I do with it? He decided to move the new factory. It was revolutionary in its time. It had a library. It had a dining room serving hot food. It had leisure facilities. It had space. It had 
clubs, it had education on offer. He also decided to put some money into founding a model village, just like a lot of philanthropists in Victorian times. Now, New Earswick is probably not on the outskirts of York now, but that's it. You compare it with the Victorian slums. I have to say, York did not suffer in the way London did because of the slums. It wasn't quite as awful as, as London, but there was plenty of poverty. And his aim there was to try and produce affordable homes for people who are on the lowest income. And that's always been a struggle for society, to make sure that they can afford the income of these buildings that have actually been built for them. And that also had beautiful grounds and leisure facilities, and it's got a school and so on. It's there now. You can go and visit it. still there. But he was still troubled by being so rich. I think there were, there were hundreds of employees, 4,000 employees later on, starting off with about 20, and all this money coming in, he didn't know what to do with it. Well, I know how easy it is in the various forms of personal expenditure to acquire step-by-step expensive habits. One of the mischievous ways in which these habits tell is by increasing the barrier between wealthy people and their fellows. The observation of a lifetime has led me to believe that any considerable amount of wealth more often proves a curse than a blessing. In the remembrance of this, I have, with I believe, the hearty assent of my children, given about one half of my property to the establishment of three trusts. This is why I chose him, because he did something creative and different. And he did have the assent of his children, because all his children followed in his Quaker tradition, and one of them, Seabone, actually became quite well known himself for publishing things about poverty and for the way he ran the factory after his father's death. And this is the most interesting thing of all. Charity is ordinarily practiced, the charity of endowment, the charity of emotion, the charity which takes the place of justice, creates much of the misery it relieves, and does not relieve all the misery it creates. Much of the current philanthropical effort is directed to remedying the more superficial manifestations of weakness and evil, while little thought or effort is directed to search out their underlying causes. The soup kitchen in York never has difficulty in obtaining financial aid, but an inquiry into the extent and causes of poverty would enlist little support. That's why he started his Joseph Roundtree Trust Foundation. You may or may not have heard of it. There were two trusts. There originally were were three, but but there are only two now. And one of them does housing and has got a model set up for elderly people now up in York. And, and it supports New Year's Week and, and housing initiatives. And this one is the one that does research into policy and collects statistics and gets information about the, you know, gets facts, basically. And I just randomly went onto the website. It's totally free. Anyone can use it. And there's a vast, vast survey at the moment that I just picked up, which is all about the voting intentions of low-income voters and why they're voting the way they are and their interests and what they're interested in. You can research all sorts of things. I bet a lot of politicians use it. There there are reports going back several years, but recent ones as well. And and I just took the work one and I split it into the different categories that it got under work. Lots of people get grants. They can get grants to do things. They can get grants to do research. And from the housing one, they can get grants to promote housing. Basically, it's about poverty. A social and charitable trust to help finance social surveys and research and for Quaker concerns. The the second had power to undertake social... I told you the second one no longer exists because it was subsumed into the other one. And the third to support New Year's Week in housing for the poor. All three trusts to be living bodies free to adapt themselves to the necessities of the times. He made quite clear in all his deeds when he set up the trust that he knew he couldn't envisage the future that his trustees were to move with the times and change things as they felt necessary. Now, this is what he's particularly... This trust is well known for, because the government uses this. It's the minimum income standards. Now, it is based on what the public think we all need for a decent minimum living. And what they do is they get focus groups. They all get focus groups of couples with children, a focus group of single people and a focus group of pensioners, for instance, a cross-section. So the pensioners might be rich pensioners and poor pensioners and they will get these focus groups and say, what do you think? We're not telling you, what do you think people now in our society today need for a decent living? 
because the whole idea was to give access to choice and opportunities to poor people, not just, not just give them the basics of food and clothing, and doesn't define poverty as such. I went on the website and had a look. I thought somebody might ask me, so I found out. And apparently they're doing some research at the moment to create a category for people who live in rural areas, because you can understand that people who live in rural areas find it even more difficult to access things than people who don't. And one of the things I found most interesting, it was in 2012, they started just with a couple with two children to include a car as one of the minimum income standards because people can't access work and jobs very well if they haven't got a car. They can't get their children to school sometimes if they haven't got a car. They can't drive to the supermarket and buy things in bulk if they haven't got a car. And so all those reasons, that focus group decided they would need a car and it's included in the basket. That's probably why it's a significant bump up. But it's because of the lack of public transport as well as anything else, that particularly in rural areas, that they need the car. So it's worth looking into if you're interested in these sorts of things. These are his legacy. He left an awful lot of stuff to York. Most, most of the streets in York have got his influence if you ever wander around them. And, and his trust is the main one. That's why when Bill Gates said something about being creative, I thought this was a creative, and it's still there, still producing information. Tavia Hill. Did she come from money? No, she didn't. But she came from connections. She was born. Wisbech, is that how you say it? Wisbech, okay. The museum to her name now. So if you ever want to find out more, you can go and visit Wisbech and, and see it. And it was a pleasant town, and she was born into a moderately wealthy family. But her father, who was an idealist, tried to create a utopian-type village, and it all foundered, and he was, his banking business was no good either. He had been widowed twice and had six children when he married Caroline Southwood-Smith, who was her mother. She was the governess for these six children, apparently, and it's like, reader, he married her. He did marry the governess. They were obviously in sympathy with each other's views. She was into progressive education and Palozzi and all sorts of things. Octavia was her father's eighth daughter and ninth child, but he had a mental collapse, and he was declared... (laughs) (laughs) I doubt all those children... But I'd have to say it was probably also providing for all those children that was one of the issues. He collapsed in a heap and Caroline took over and became more or less a single parent with the youngest girls because the others were much older. So he was declared bankrupt in 1840 and her grandfather had to take over supporting the family. And these are her early influences. Her grandfather, who was Southwood Smith, was a health and welfare reformer concerned with social issues, including child labour and housing of the urban poor. And he helped look after Octavia and her sisters when they were young and gave them financial support. But they did struggle. They really, really did struggle. And she actually had to go out to work, which was an incredibly awful thing to be doing in Victorian times for a young woman. She actually had to go to work. But I doubt very much, because I did read that in this book that somewhere she told these poor people that she was dealing with, and some of them were very difficult. You can imagine. And she says, well, I was really, really poor once, you know. You know, I know what it feels like. And they're looking at her. No, you don't. (laughs) John Ruskin. Now, she was very friendly with John Ruskin because she started working for him as a copyist and actually saw a picture, a copy of a Bellini of the Doge, famous painting, which she copied. So she was obviously artistically creative and, and good at it, and he used her as a copyist because they didn't have photocopying and they didn't have this stuff. And when they gave lectures about art, what were you supposed to do, stand in front of people and tell them how beautiful a picture was? So she, she was a copyist for him, so she earned a bit of money. She also earned a bit of money working in the ragged schools, which you may have heard of, because a lot of philanthropists in Victorian times supported the ragged schools, and, and she ended up serving as a secretary of the women's reading classes at the Workings Men College as well. So she's got little bit, bits and pieces of work, and she had helped support the rest of her family when she was young. Ruskin fell out with her at a later stage, but you, if you want to read about that, it's interesting, but we won't go there the moment but he was very sympathetic to her cause and he was a humanitarian he was revolted by the conditions that poor people had to live with and he was the one that 
that gave her money. Another influence, I don't know if you heard of Mayhew's London, you probably have if you read anything about the Victorian period. He was also a very interesting man, one of 17 children who ran away to sea and, and ended up editing Punch. So he's another one that became bankrupt, spent 10 years in, in France avoiding his creditors. But he wrote a very seminal book, it influenced Dickens as well, in terms of documenting the lives of the poor in London. So all these people influenced her, and she was very, very into religion as a young girl as well. She started helping out with ragged schools. So she was, if you like, steeped in the conditions of the working poor in London. London is her place, really. She felt that uh, the housing system failed the poor, and John Ruskin agreed to lend her the money. She tried to find new homes for her charges, the poor that she was helping, but there was a severe shortage of available property. Does that sound familiar? And Hill decided her only solution was to become a landlord herself, but she had no money, but she had the connection. So John Ruskin lent her the money. She acquired two leases, three cottages in Paradise Place, Marylebone. They were split up eventually to smaller places, and then another five more in Freshwater Place, Marylebone. Look on the web, you can find a two-bedroomed flat in Garbutt Place for 3000 a month rent. And I thought, oh, I have to say, the middle class always win out, don't they? Because they're lovely houses, aren't they? She, with Ruskin's money, had them built. But it wasn't just her cleverness in terms of getting money out of Ruskin. She managed to get money out of it. After being improved, they were let to those on low incomes. A return of 5% on capital was obtained, as promised, to Ruskin. And any excess we invested in the properties for the benefit of the tenants. Rent arrears were not tolerated, and bad debts were minimal. This was the way she did it, because she knew those families. She bossed them around like nobody's business. She knew them. She said, extreme punctuality and diligence in collecting rents and a strict determination they should be paid regularly have accomplished this. So in consequence, she was able to attract new backers. You created capitalism here, right? And by 1874, she had 15 housing schemes with around 3,000 tenants. And her system was based on closely managing the tenants as well as the buildings. You cannot deal with the people and their houses separately, she said. She maintained close personal contact with all her tenants, strongly opposed to impersonal bureaucratic organisations. Her problem was that she didn't really like the state to be providing houses. She was against this, you see. And you can see from her point of view, it didn't fit in with her system of managing them closely herself. But the fact is, she, as an individual, she couldn't do enough, could she? It needed state intervention. In her view, municipal socialism and subsidised housing led to indiscriminate demolition. Well, it does in some cases. Rehousing schemes and the destruction of communities. That's her view. So at the heart of it, though, was the weekly visit to collect rent. And this is the earliest, earliest reference to social workers. She used to employ women volunteers, mostly her friends and family at first, and then later she did start paying people to visit regularly every week. And so they would get to know the families personally and what their problems were and what their issues were and, and see to it that there was a link between the people who are the landlords and the people who are living in them. And if they had any spare time, these assistants would create tenants' associations and after-work and after-school clubs and societies. And in 1889, she created the Southwark Detachment of the Army Cadet Force, its first independent unit. There were some in some schools, but this is the first independent unit because she believed it would make a difference to the boys in the neighbourhood. And I've just got one quote. Of course I realise that all you say about war because you can imagine her descent, her family and her religious family were a bit concerned, just like Quakers would have been, for cadets, you see. But I do not feel any doubts about the volunteer cadet corps, for at least three reasons. Firstly, I believe defensive war is right. Secondly, the volunteer movement seems to me a helpful form of preparation. And thirdly, I do so clearly see that exercise, discipline, obedience, esprit de corps, camping out, mainly companionship, will be to our Southwark lads the very best possible education. So she went on and on and it grew and grew. She fell out with Ruskin. 
And then there were occasional little schemes that she promoted. And this is one, another nice little corner in, in Southwark in 1887 by Elijah Hall. You can go and visit. And one of the things she had is a beautiful garden there. And she helped to plan this garden with this chap called Elijah Hall. And she said, There is perhaps no need of the poor of London which more prominently forces itself on the notice of anyone working among them than that of space. How can it best be given? And what is it precisely which should be given? I think we want four things. Places to sit in, places to play in, places to stroll in, and places to spend a day in. The preservation of Wimbledon and Epping shows that the need is increasingly recognised. But a visit to Wimbledon, Epping or Windsor means for the workman not only the cost of the journey, but the loss of a whole day's wages. We want, besides, places where the long summer evenings or the Saturday afternoon may be enjoyed without effort or expense. She understood the people, didn't she? You probably know her as a founder of the National Trust, which is also what she went on to do. The energy of some of these people, just absolutely amazing. In 1884, the Ecclesiastical Commissions recognised her enlightened approach and turned her to manage and reform their slum properties in South London, which were notorious for poverty and petty crime. Hill turned these estates into model properties, which still paid a return on the investment. These estates continued to be let to tenants at affordable rents throughout much of the 20th century, even when rent control was relaxed and open market rents substantially increased. She was engaged in a campaign to stop building in Buttermere early on, and she had a friend called Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, who was working up north to do the same. There was a solicitor who was of the Commons Preservation Society, and these three people were, all became connected through their work to preserve space. And so on November the 16th, 1893, Hill, Hunter and Rawnsley met in the offices of the Commons Preservation Society and agreed to launch a trust. She wanted it to be called the Commons and Gardens Trust, but the three agreed to adopt Hunter's suggested title, the National Trust. And under its first full formal title, the National Trust for Places of Historic Interest or Natural Beauty was inaugurated the following year. It was only in 1907 that the actual Act was passed, enshrining the Trust's permanent purpose and giving it powers to protect property for the benefit of the nation. Right, so a formidable person. She had a companion for a lot of her life, died towards the end of her life, and she was very sad. A lot of these ladies did. One didn't know what their... I mean, I'm sure their relationship was totally celibate, but both she and uh, Angela Bedett had people with them for nearly 50-odd years, being their companion and doing things for them, uh, but also their closest, most loyal friend. So Octavia did, did as well. And so one of her legacies was actually social work, because the women who trained under her formed the Association of Women Housing Workers and they became the first sort of social workers that ever existed. And I just thought I'd read you this bit out. Hill was short, like all her family, and indifferent to fashion. Her friend, Henrietta Barnett, a grammar school in North London, another lot of philanthropists, if anybody else wants to do them, she and her husband set up Toynbee Hall, which was another settlement in London to get young aspiring politicians mostly to come and live and work among the poor to get a feeling for it. Apparently Beveridge and Clem Attlee both visited Toynbee Hall. Henrietta Barnett is a very interesting lady but she was a good friend of hers and she said she was small in stature with a long body and short legs. She did not dress she only wore clothes. <laughs> <laughs> which were often unnecessarily unbecoming. Oh. And Barnett also spoke of Hill's streak of ruthlessness. Well, she would have had to be ruthless, wouldn't she, to do the stuff that she did as a woman without money. Though she did end up comfortably off, and she did have all these connections that supported her all her life. Gertrude Bell, who was she pot-calling the kettle black, called Hill despotic. Oh. Later in life... In Hill's life, the Bishop of London, Frederick Temple, encountered her at a meeting of the ecclesiastical commissioners and wrote, she spoke for half an hour, I never had such a beating in all my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's Octavia Hill. Now we're moving on to somebody completely different whose life I found totally entertaining. 
I don't know that she was always so entertaining, entertained by it, but Angela Burdett Coote, the first baronet, 1814 to 1906, absolutely contemporary pretty well with Queen Victoria. She was very slender. All the pictures of her show very tall, very slender, long face, probably like a Scottish face, but she didn't have very good skin, apparently, and that was a bit embarrassing to her. That aside, she was at the top of the tree in terms of society. In the same year that Queen Victoria came to the throne, aged 18, Angela Burdett, youngest daughter of Sir Francis Burdett MP and granddaughter of Thomas Coutts, the banker, heard the lawyer read the terms of the will of her step-grandmother that declared her heiress to one of the greatest fortunes of the century. She was 23. And you say to yourself, she is the youngest daughter of a youngest daughter. Why was the money left to her rather than to older siblings and to the previous generation? It's an interesting point. And it's probable that both her grandfather and her step-grandmother thought she was the most suitable. It's quite clear that she was regarded as the most suitable person to deal with this massive fortune, and you'll see the reasons why. The papers at the time gloated. I'm amazed by how free with their opinions newspapers were in those days, but then one shouldn't be amazed. They're just as free nowadays, aren't they, right? (laughs) It was a fortune, they reported, of of 1,800,000. Now, I can't reckon it in our terms. I can't reckon it at all. But they reckoned that the amount in sovereigns laid in a line would stretch for over 24 miles. (laughs) They were probably trying to suggest to poorer people what it might be, you know, when, like, we scientists try and tell us about billions of years and they try and put it in some perspective... So Victoria and Angela pursued sort of parallel careers and they knew each other well, though you'll find out that Queen Victoria fell out with her at a later stage. But later, Angela was often called the Queen of the Poor. So why Angela? Her grandfather, whom you will have heard of, a Scot from Edinburgh. He was the fourth son and there were two branches of his father's business, one in Edinburgh and one in London. The business in London was led by Thomas and his brother James, and in 1778, on the death of his brother, Thomas became the sole head of the firm. He was ambitious, clever, very hard-working, and very honest. He also established a reputation as a man of integrity and honesty. Hospitable and benevolent, he had many literary friends and gave liberally to charities. Apparently her parents were a bit disappointed she wasn't prettier. But you'll find out that that was beside the point, really. His statue, apparently still within the atrium of Coote's Bank. I don't know if anyone here has ever been to Coote's Bank. But it's the Royal Family Bank, as we all know. And apparently they have an ATM for the Royal Family, especially in the Coote's Bank. (laughs) (laughs) Now then, he had an interesting private life. His first wife was Elizabeth Starkey, who'd been a servant of his brother James. This was more like the 18th century than the 19th, so you could get away with stuff like that. The 18th century was a much nicer period from that point of view, from restrictions. And he married her because she was young, she was bright-complexioned, she was competent, she was sensible, and he married her. So, So she was basically a servant of his brother's, and he married her, and not too many people blinked that much, actually. So I thought I'd read you a bit, because it was funny... Because I do think Angela Coutts' life is, is probably more entertaining than some of the others. Right, he says, If Thomas Coutts attempted to give his wife some polish, he seems to have had little success. <laughs> Mrs Coutts retained her Lancashire accent and her Lancashire directness. Sir Herbert Taylor, writing of the Coutts' visit to Bologna, recorded with some amusement that Mrs Coutts being asked her opinion of the amphitheatre of Rome, replied that when furnished and whitewashed, it would be a very pretty building. (laughs) (laughs) No one minded. The Duchess of Gordon, herself given to straight talking, enjoyed the moment when Mrs Coote's stunned and elegant assembly waiting for the delayed Prince Regent with advice on how to keep the fish hot without spoiling there you go that was Mrs Coots and it was a happy marriage and produced several children all boys 
All four sons died, three daughters left, and Angela's mother was the um, youngest daughter. In his old age and before his wife died, but she did suffer from dementia towards the end and went rather mad. And as soon as she died in 1815, he married an actress, an actress, a strolling player indeed. And she was very beautiful. In her older age, she got quite fat. She was obviously fairly self-indulgent and and she was lampooned in the cartoons. And that also, despite the fact that he was twice her age, if not more, he married her and he lived with her very happily for about seven years before he died. I thought I'd read you this because this is Harriet's letter to Sir Walter Scott because she went on after her husband's death to marry the Duke of Albans. And this is what a letter she wrote. Sir Walter Scott was a friend of hers. She was obviously an intelligent lady. What a strange eventful life has mine been from a poor little player child with just food and clothes to cover me, dependent on a very precarious profession without talent. She's honest, without talent. <laughs> or a friend in the world, first the wife of the best, the most perfect being that ever breathed. She obviously, they obviously really did love each other. And now wife of a duke. You must write my life, my true history, written by the author of Waverley. (laughs) He didn't get around to it. (laughs) So her grandfather, this honest, hard-working man, made a lot of money, but upright and full of integrity and giving to charitable causes. This was her step-grandmother. This is the lady that left her the money, because when her husband died, he left her all the money, And when she died, she left the money to Angela. Her actual father, now he was an interesting, people who've researched the radical politics of this period will have come across him because he was a handsome chap, obviously, nothing to do with it, but he was. Um, You can find loads of pictures of him. He came from a wealthy and well-connected family. He went to Westminster School but expelled for his part in a riot, which seems to fit in. He probably met the Coutts family in Paris because the two, two of the girls were educated there and Thomas Coutts made connections with the, the Paris aristocracy as well as the royal aristocracy here. And he travelled in France a lot. And he probably met the Coutts family while on his grand tour just before the French Revolution. And being there before the French Revolution obviously affected Francis as well. And he married... Um, the youngest daughter of Thomas Coutts in 1793. Lots of children in quick succession. But he was involved in radical politics from very early on, but also notoriously involved with a lady, another notorious lady, Lady Oxford. One of her children was supposed to be his. Apparently, could research Lady Oxford as well, because she was married to someone called Harley Oxford, and her, her children called the, the Harleyan miscellany meaning that nobody knew quite who belonged to which father. But anyway, he had an affair with her for a considerable time, much to Sophia, his own wife's. This is Angela's mother's grief. But Thomas Coutts, hoping to settle him down, bought him a seat in Parliament, as she did, which is ironic because as as parliamentary reform was the burning issue of his early political career. But you have to be in there to do anything about it, probably, so maybe fair enough. He was being pursued and hounded by the authorities, despite his privileges, a lot of his life. And so I thought I would just read you a bit about the famous Piccadilly siege. As the first radical MP for Westminster, he was a constant thorn in the side of the government. They were delighted to find any excuse to remove him. In 1810, a radical John Jones was imprisoned by order of the House of Commons for alleged sedition, just like Cobbett. When Sir Francis challenged the legality of the proceedings, Cobbett published his speech in the political register, and Burdett, accused of breach of privilege, was condemned to the Tower by the Speaker. Maintaining that such action was against the law, does it sound a bit like... (laughs) Burdett refused to accept the Speaker's order. And for four days he held out in his Piccadilly house, defying Mr Speaker and the house. This time, this is his wife, because she was pretty upset with him, obviously, was at his side. Although apparently after her husband's arrest, Mr Coots commented that he hadn't seen his daughter looking so well for years. (laughs) 
Anyway, he was actually eventually imprisoned, although they had to break into his Piccadilly house to take him there, and she was standing there looking very distressed the whole of the time, and he was taken off to prison. Although, with a forethought born of his experience of prisons, Sir Francis had sent a Connor to the tower to make sure that his quarters were well aired. (laughs) The constable of the tower assured him with deference that he would be lodged in a comfortable dry house next to his own. But as they set out, the journey was anything but comfortable. So this man was a courageous man, a radical, involved in politics, at the expense of his own, you know, comfort. But basically that was his politics, radical politics, and one of the sympathies was with the the Irish. The Irish, that was Francis Burdett. You could find out more about him because he's a very interesting character. What should she do with her money? That was the big question for Angela all her life. And you say Joseph Round, she had that big question. Octavia Hill didn't have the question because she didn't have the money, but she got the money from other places, right? What should she do with the money? Plenty of people seem to think that she ought to marry them. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Okay. so... And I've got the history of probably the first recorded stalker in connection with... I'll just read you some bits out about this. Sir George Sinclair wrote, as Punch reported, the world set to work, matchmaking, determined to unite the splendid heiress to somebody. Now she was to marry her physician, and now she was to become a Scotch countess. The last husband in the papers is Louis Napoleon. How Miss Coots escaped Ibrahim Pasha when he was here is somewhat extraordinary. For if the Emperor of China were to vouchsafe to let fall his shadow upon the British court in the shape of an ambassador, it would soon appear in the papers that His Excellency Ching Chow Cherry Chow, having cut his pigtail and conformed to the Christian religion, was about to lead Miss Burdett Coots to the altar. (laughs) (laughs) This sudden popularity was deeply distasteful to her. And there was even speculation at court One suitor was to call her real distress for many years. Richard Dunn, the wild-eyed and bankrupt Irish barrister, pursued her with insane persistence for 18 years. In the summer of 1838, hounded by beggars and suitors, she fled to the fashionable spa, Harrogate, an ideal retreat. But Dunn followed her north, even breaking into the house she had rented. Though he was arrested, the magistrate let him off lightly. Hmm. And he was free to continue his persecution. Two years later, the spectator described her martyrdom at the hands of this terrible Irishman. He blockaded Miss Coots for two mortal years. If she went to Harrogate, he followed her. If she returned to Stratton Street, he entrenched himself in the Gloucester Hotel. If she walked in the parks, he was at her heels. If she took a walk in a private garden, he was waving handkerchiefs over the wall or, or creeping through below the hedge. With his own hands, he deposited his card in her sitting room. He drove her from church and intruded himself into the private chapel in which she took refuge. In vain, her precaution to have policemen constantly in her hall and a bodyguard of servants when she moved abroad. Denied the use of his tongue, he bombarded her with letters, smuggling them into her hands under all sorts of disguises. He is unparalleled in history. She developed a, <coughs> a phobia. But you can imagine that she felt a complete distaste and and it made her situation in terms of finding a partner terribly, terribly difficult. So that's one of the reasons why the future history of all of that. Who should she take up with? She was obviously a clever girl, very serious-minded, interested in all, all sorts of things. She was quite close to Disraeli and she met with these people and they came to her house and was very much a patron Michael Faraday. We had a talk about him. He put her forward as a member of the Royal Society and she was the first woman to be put forward and in the end she agreed. But she liked mixing with clever, intelligent, intellectual people. She was interested in the ideas of the day. But there wasn't a suitor among them. The Duke of Wellington. He was really, really old. He had been a family friend and a neighbour in his Apsley house, not far from where her family home was, and she saw him as someone she could go to ask his advice. She had trouble with the trusteeship of the bank. I mean, we think of her as being rich and having a very easy life. This money did not bring her much happiness, and it caused 
quarrels in the family and it caused quarrels with the other partners in the bank. One of her things was she wanted to pay the clerks and the working people in the bank more money. And one of the partners held out against it for two years. She was desperately trying to raise their wages. So she went to Duke of Wellington to ask for advice. He sort of became to idolise him because he was taking a notice of her. And she was flattered by his attentions of a great man. For the next few years, they corresponded every day. This is without text, isn't it, without emails. Corresponded every day. And sometimes the Duke wrote to her twice, considering her health, considering the issues that she was thinking about, very solicitous of her. And they visited each other. And it was almost like a very late love for him, if you like. He gave her presents. She netted a purse for him. I don't know what a netted purse looks like. It sounds as though the money would fall out. (laughs) He escorted her to balls and so on. And at last, she had an admirer who was not courting her for her wealth. Her father had died in 1844. She was obviously looking, to some extent, for a father figure. And there was a great deal of scandal attached because people were fearing that they were going to get married. On February the 7th, 1847, she proposed to him. She proposed to him. She was 33 and he was 78. And I I must read out his rejection because it's there. And, you know, no matter what you think of the Duke of Wellington, it's rather lovely. This is his letter to her. My dearest Angela, I have passed every moment of the evening and night since I quitted you in reflecting upon our conversation of yesterday, every word of which I have considered repeatedly. My first duty towards you is that of friend, guardian, protector. You are young, my dearest. You have before you the prospect of at least 20 years... Well, she lived to be 91, but anyway. (laughs) 20 years uh, of enjoyment of happiness in life. I entreat you again in this way not to throw yourself upon a man old enough to be your grandfather, who, however strong, hearty and healthy at present must and will certainly in time feel the consequences and infirmities of age. You cannot know, but I do, the dismal consequences to you of this certainty. Hopeless for years, during which you will still be in the prime of your life. That was Duke of Wellington's letter to her. She was devoted to his memory all his life, and when he actually died, some six years later... She was regarded as his widow, and people wrote condolences to her because she was, they were so close. So you can see it's a succession of people who influenced her, but what she's looking for is people will influence her and help her to do the things, to accomplish the things that she wanted. Charles Dickens had spoken to her in the 1840s about founding a home for prostitutes. or or for women who'd been convicted of crimes and when they were released from prison, finding a way of saving them and and giving them a new life. And they were very involved in this. And to some extent, she was involved with him. He was a married man, obviously. They spent years and hours and hours and hours discussing how to go about it. But in actual fact, the person who did the work in the end of the day was Charles himself. And everything I've read about him and Eurania Cottage shows he, he was what you would say disinterested. In, in his intention and his sympathy for, for these girls who'd had no chance in life. And he brought in a whole load of regulations. It was called Urania Cottage, which he purchased with her money, because it was her money that did it, obviously. He purchased it specially to make it a home. He wouldn't call it Urania Cottage. He called it the home, and he wanted the girls to regard it as home, forget their past lives, and he had all sorts of things done in order to get encourage them to get new lives. And Angela was behind him all the way, and they were one of their topics of conversation, how this was moving forward. And it opened in 1847... And maybe it lasted about 10 years because, you know, the scandal of Charles Dickens and his separation from his wife caused uh, Angela to, to back off altogether because it was a very public scandal. Quite a few of the outcomes were very, very positive. Some of the girls ran away. Some of them had to be thrown out because of their behaviour. But one of the things I found most endearing was that Charles Dickens wanted the girls to have colourful clothes and Angela had thought, thought at first, like everybody else would, they got to have drab grey, dark. No, he said, give them some colour, give them some colour. And, and he put a piano in the parlour as well. And there was one lady who was supposed to be, you know, like, in sympathy, and she said, they've got a piano. And he said in a letter at some point, he said, I wish I'd have thought at the time to say, yes, they've got a grand piano in every room. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't. 
Anyway, you can read about this. There's a book that somebody's written about Urania Cottage, and the whole idea was to set them up, give them a new life, and, and send them to Australia or Canada or wherever they wanted to go with, with a package so that they could start afresh. And some of them did. And the lady who wrote this book has tracked down the descendants of some of these people. But some of them went back to their old ways and some of them couldn't abide the rules and regulations. And in actual fact, he had a policeman keeping the outside so that people couldn't break in or couldn't cause any problems. But in actual fact, this policeman was found in, in the room of one of the girls. <laughs> She was very involved with that project and backed Charles Dickens all the way with it and was very, very keen to help. She knew tens of thousands of prostitutes in London. They'd be wandering up and down the street in front of her house, you know. She knew all about it. In 1881, she made what was considered to be a mad marriage and this is what caused the break with Queen Victoria. Because her companion had just died and all these other people whom she'd looked up to to help her had died, she married her male secretary, William Lehman Ashman Bartlett, in 1881. She was 69. He was 29. <laughs> and it makes it sound as though he was just a rip-off merchant of one sort or another. But in actual fact, they stayed married for 27 years. And although he spent quite a lot of her money because he, he was into the breeding of horses and he wasn't very good with her money, he didn't go off and have strings of mistresses or cause an immense amount of grief. And she had a constant companion, which is what she had always wanted, you know, a constant companion. By the terms of the original will... If she married a foreigner, which Harriet Mellon, the lady that left her the money, had got into the will, she would forfeit most of the money from the bank. It, an arrangement was made, and she did forfeit it, most of it, and maybe she felt relieved by it, actually. But she married him anyway, and people couldn't believe it. There's all sorts of disbelieving accounts, that you know, the gossip, you can imagine. She endowed the bishoprics of Cape Town and Adelaide and founded the bishopric of British Columbia. The granite Greyfire Bobby fountain in Edinburgh with a bronze statue was erected by her. She was the co-founder of the London Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Children, which became the NSCCC. She was closely involved with the Royal Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Animals. Um, she financed the Ordnance Survey of Jerusalem to try and find water there and I've got a list of the things that she helped to finance some of them housing some of them philanthropic you know buildings some of them schools all the things she gave money to because one of the things that Charles Dickens said she listened with kindly eyes and she was a, a modest person even though she gave grand parties to grand people she was a very modest person in herself quite clearly but anyway this is the list off Wikipedia president of the British beekeepers President of the Ladies Committee of the RSPCA. She gave money for the church bells of St. Paul's. She built Columbia Market, which opened in 1869. She did the drinking fountain in Victoria Park. Drinking fountains for dogs. Her help for the Turkish peasants and refugees of the 1877 Russo-Turkish War. Housing schemes for the working class. The London Ragged School Union. Sewing school for women in Spitalfields when the silk trade declined. So she supported organisations for the Aboriginal peoples of Australia and for the Dyaks of Borneo. Promotion of the fishing industry in Ireland by helping to start schools and provide boats. She also advanced 250000 in 1880 for supplying seed potatoes to the impoverished tenants in Ireland. And I think that was a legacy of her father's interest in Ireland, you know. Duke of Wellington thought she was mad. <laughs> Placement of hundreds of destitute boys in training ships for the Navy and Merchant Service. Support of the British Orological Institute. The Burdett Coots Memorial Sundial, commissioned for St Pancras Old Church, listing the names of many people whose bodies have been dug up from the church to make space for the Midland Railway. And last but not least, she was president of the British Goat Society. <laughs> she was buried in Westminster. She didn't particularly want to be. And she was a rather wonderful, kindly lady who ha happened to be saddled with this burden of this immense amount of money. And probably her life was not made much better. George Peabody. I, I didn't know this, and the only reason I included him was to be a little bit peaty and diverse. But he was American. 
And you probably have all heard of the Peabody Trust that built all these houses in London. And I didn't know he was American, so I thought I'd find out a bit about him. He was born in 1795, further back than most of other people, in South Danvers in Massachusetts, but it's now called Peabody. So his legacy is the change of name from South Danvers to Peabody. He poor family, and he grew up poor. His father died when he was young. I have never forgotten, never can forget the great privations of my early years. These factors influenced his later devotion to both thrift and philanthropy. The fact is, he came to London as part of his business, which he'd started a dry goods business with a chap called Riggs, and he came to London to purchase wares and to negotiate the sale of American cotton. And in 1837, he took up residence in London. So if you like, London was his city, which is why we've ended up with this legacy of housing from the Peabody Trust. And he started a banking business, trading in his own account. I've discovered that American state governments were not good for paying their debts, and therefore they weren't getting much credit. And he did an awful lot to make sure that the American states were persuaded to pay their debts. And as a result of that, they got more credit, they got more money, and he built up his business and therefore he became very, very rich eventually. He took Junius Spencer Morgan, father of J.P. Morgan, into partnership in 1854 to form Peabody, Morgan and Company, and they worked together until his retirement in 1864. So apparently Morgan Grenfell and J.P. Morgan were originally part of this business that he founded. But basically, he spent most of the rest of his life giving money away. He never married. There was supposed to be a daughter somewhere, but he never married. And what he did was he divided his money, if you like, between America and London. And in America, he spent his money on education. So there's hundreds of institutes and schools and university departments and art establishments that have got money from the Peabody Trust. But in London, he wanted to do something to ameliorate the condition of the poor and needy of this great metropolis. So it all went into housing. He funded an enormous amount of housing in Spitalfields and South London. Horse Ferry Road apparently has got a thing saying Peabody Trust on it. Decent quality housing for the artisans and labouring poor of London... He had two funerals, one here in Westminster Abbey to thank him, and then he was eventually buried in America, not surprisingly. But there's hundreds and hundreds of things that I'm not going to read out that are left as part of his legacy. But he grew up poor. You see how people can come from different angles at this? He grew up poor, and he was very thrifty himself, if not mean, apparently, like some people are, but he left all this money to other people. If you walk from the London Eye, along the Thames footpath, if you've ever done this, towards Greenwich. You can't go on the path all the way, but you can go a lot of the way. Just before you get to Rotherhide and the Mayflower pub, or next to the Angel pub this is, about a couple of miles down, you'll see statues. And Our son has just started living in that area, and we were going for a walk, and, and we saw these, and we thought, what on earth are these? What are they doing here? I started reading up about them. There's a statue of a man, there's a lady in a crinoline, there's a little girl on the wall, there's a cat. And I haven't written anything up, but I'll just tell you about them, because Ada Salter, the wife, 1866 to 1942, born in Northamptonshire, active in the Methodist Church, came to live in London. Now, as part of this thing, I told you about Queenby <coughs> Hall before, Harriet Barnett's place, they had things called settlements where middle-class people and people with qualifications and skills were encouraged to come and live among the poor and be one of the poor, almost, in order to rejuvenate, to promote better lives for the poor. And she and her husband, separately from their different areas, he, he was born in Greenwich and she was born in Northamptonshire, and she was driven by Christian faith, he wasn't particularly, he was driven more by socialism, came to live in this Bermondsey settlement. He was a brilliant, brilliant doctor. He passed out at St Guy's Hospital. He got two awards straight after his exams and he was offered all sorts of jobs and he worked very briefly at the Lister Institute. He was obviously had a brilliant medical career in front of him, but he gave it up, came to live in Bermondsey. She gave up a nice middle-class life in Northamptonshire and they met there and they married. And they basically worked tirelessly all their lives for the good of the people of Bermondsey because this was the most deprived part of London. You couldn't find anywhere more deprived. She insisted, Ada insisted on living in the slums among the poor. And so she became, if you like, in quick succession, 
president of the Women's Liberal Party. Then she became a Labour Party member. She became the first mayor, eventually the first lady, woman mayor of any borough in London, the first le woman councillor in London. But one of her major things was the beaut beautification of Bermondsey, it was called, and there was a committee. She and her team went around planting gardens, planting trees, all the trees in the Bermondsey area, probably a legacy of Ada Salter's work, because she just believed in green spaces. And she helped to encourage a union among the women workers, because they were even more poorly paid than the men workers, and she worked tirelessly for these causes, and he set up a practice in a place called Jamaica Road that was working from there, and he gave out free medical help. He took money from people who could pay, and eventually he had to have five doctors working with him because the need was so great. He held health classes in local buildings. He did everything he possibly could to stamp out tuberculosis. So there they are, living in this really poor area, and she's quite old. She's in her late 30s. She's older than him, seven years, and she produces a little girl in 1902. Joy, as she was called, lived with them, only child, she catches scarlet fever, doesn't she? And she dies at the age of eight. It's terrible. It's terrible. The, the people of Bermondsey, apparently there was only a statue to him, first of all, but somebody stole it. It's fairly recent. It's fairly recent that the statue was, to, was of him. And, and the people of Bermondsey now, like quite recently, collected £100,000 to put these statues of, of Joy and the cat and and Alfred and Ada standing there because their memory is still quite strong among some people. It was like an early form of the NHS he was providing, basically. And he ended up as an MP, a Labour MP. He fought various elections and didn't get anywhere, but eventually ended up as a Labour MP. Despite what happened to them, they lived and worked there for the rest of their lives. So I thought, these are the people... Let's to go back to the beginning. These are the people that Bill Gates was talking about when he says the real philanthropists are those who make a significant sacrifice. So there you go. That's the end of my talk. <laughs> This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this podcast.